me to John chapter 11. Uh, we're going to be jumping in there and at, right, at, right where we left off last week, where we left, uh, Jesus has <laughs> raised Lazarus from the dead. He's called him out of the tomb after he'd been in there for four, four days. And so what I'd, I'd like to do is just jump in this morning and pick up. So would you stand with me now as we turn to the Word of God together? As we talked with our kids just a few minutes ago, we come to God's Word with diligence. We come with preparation. We come with expectancy, uh, knowing that God loves to speak to His people. So this is John 11, uh, starting in verse Sorry, starting in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples." Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray in these moments uh, that you would allow us uh, the grace of hearing from you, uh, that you would speak so that our deaf ears can hear you, that you would shine in such a way that our blind eyes might finally perceive you, and that you would awaken our souls today to draw nearer and nearer to you. Lord, by your grace, through faith, that you would speak to us today. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's, it's, no, uh, it's no great secret that, that people in our world are far more transient than, it, than really at any other time in human history. I mean, it, people move from job to job. They move from uh, neighborhood to neighborhood. They move from city to city. They, we, we move all the time. And this struck me just a few weeks ago when uh, when we were watching, our family was watching an episode of the, uh, the TV show, The Office, um, which, if, if you don't know, is a show that's supposed to be filmed as sort of a documentary. Um, and they just kind of follow these people around a, a mid-sized regional paper supply company in Scranton, Pennsylvania, right? Uh, and in the last season of that show, we, we'd watched the whole, the whole series together, uh, Laurie and, and our daughter and I, and so we 
we get to the end of the series, the, the last season, uh, which is not one of the best seasons, let's just be honest. But anyway, it was fine. Uh, but there's this part in there where the, one of the main characters has been commissioned to paint this mural in the, in the warehouse where, all the, where they kept all the, the paper. Uh, it, was designed, it, was, it was to be this mural that was going to depict all the main characters sort of in their natural habitat, right? So sitting at their desk or, or, or whatever. That was, that was the idea. It's, it's a big part of how they really close out the whole story arc of the show. It's the legacy that's supposed to be left behind. But it occurred to me, uh, even, even in that episode... Uh, that several of the characters, even those depicted in the mural, no longer, no longer work there. In fact, a whole handful of them, they don't even live in the same town as the paper company at that point. They don't work there anymore. It's not their natural habitat. And in fact, they may never see that mural again. Beyond that, I mean, let's just play this out. Beyond that, within a couple of years, it's entirely possible there'll be a whole other company who works in that office space, who rents out their warehouse, and they are going to immediately paint over this mural because they're not going to know any of the people in the picture. Because people are transient. Last week, we saw how, how Lazarus had died, all right? And when he died, people from Jerusalem, friends and family, they came and they gathered together, uh, they, they had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. That's what it said. They had gathered together to mourn the loss of Lazarus. So what we still do today, isn't it? The sadness of loss often brings with it the joy of reunion. It's one of the great um, sort of ironies of death is that in the midst of that sadness, you have this gathering with the people who you love, who you haven't seen for years and years. A few years back when my grandfather went to be with the Lord, we all, we all gathered in the town where he had grown up, where he had lived as a child, and, and we went there for a graveside service. All the extended family came from all over, you know, cousins who you, like you think they're family, but you're really not sure because you only see them at funerals or memorial services. And so you're hugging, but you're... Anyway, that was who all was there. And we gathered uh, there, had a graveside service. We buried my grandfather and we all went inside after that to share a meal together. And while the catalyst that brought us all there for that moment was, was the sadness of loss, there was great joy to be found for, because for just a minute, the mural of the Williams family was, was reconfigured. It was recreated. And there was a true sense of joy in the room. There was joy in the room. And I will tell you that not a soul sitting there eating that meal had any expectation that my grandfather was going to show up and participate with us in that meal. Nobody walked into that room with that expectation at all. Just like nobody went to Bethany expecting to hang out with Lazarus. Can you imagine what it would have been like to have been there and to have Lazarus participate in his own memorial meal? To actually come and sit down at the table with them. Imagine what that would have been like. That's a different type of joy for that family. That's an unexpected, sort of impossible to conceive of next level type of joy Right there, and it had an impact, as you can imagine. It had an immediate impact because that's the type of thing that's going to spread pretty quickly. You know, we went to bury him, ended up having dinner with him. 
And that's just what we find at the end of 11. We see the impact of this undeniable sign of Jesus' divinity. This is a, this is a leave-no-doubt miracle. You know what I mean? When you raise someone from the dead, that's a leave-no-doubt. Let it be known. One of my favorite movies is the movie uh, Remember the Titans. And I don't care if you tell me it's a little bit historically inaccurate or if you tell me that it wasn't really that way. I love that movie and I always will. Herman Boone is one of my heroes as a football coach. But it's actually the assistant coach who has one of the best lines in the entire movie. When the team is about to be cheated out of this game and the assistant coach sees this happen and he calls his team over to the sideline. I tried this yesterday with a group of kids. It didn't work quite as well. But anyway, um, they were, it was a soccer game. Maybe it's the, anyway. Anyway, so he calls them over to the sideline and he says, all right, here's the deal. We're going to blitz every play. We're going to attack them. And he says this, we leave no doubt. You see, when Jesus raised Lazarus out of the grave, that was a leave-no-doubt miracle. Maybe you're on the fence. Maybe you thought that was just a sandbar I happened to be walking on across the Sea of Galilee. Maybe you thought it was a parlor trick that I turned water to wine. Maybe you thought it was just kind of cool that I was able to calm a storm, but I just called a man from the dead out of the grave who'd been there for four days. That's a leave-no-doubt miracle. And the only explanation, and I, I, would, I would use these words, the only reasonable, the only rational, the only realistic explanation for Jesus calling Lazarus out of the grave is that he has power over death itself, something that no ordinary man has, which means Jesus is no ordinary man. It's like, an event that this event would have been like a rock hitting a calm pond. I mean, the people who saw this are going to immediately start telling everybody. And so the waves of that event are going to continue to spread, continue to spread. And they're going to keep going and going. In fact, you and I sitting here today reading this story are proof that what I just said is true. That the waves of Lazarus being called out of the grave have not stopped to move through culture and society. You and I are evidence of that. And that's where the tension comes from. We see it there in verse 46. Look at that. That some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. All right, so what we know is that some of them believed, right? In fact, what it said was that many of them had seen and believed. But for some of them, they saw. But what they saw was interpreted as a threat. They saw it as a threat to, to their to their livelihoods, to their community. Jesus, for them, became more and more of a threat to their system that they had in place. That's what they demonstrated, and that's what we're going to call today the Caiaphas worldview. I know we don't use the name Caiaphas a whole lot. By the way, if you're, on, if you're like one of those people who's getting ready to have a baby and you're searching the Bible for baby names, don't choose Caiaphas. Legacy is not a healthy one, okay? Uh, the, just... It sounds kind of cool, but don't, don't grab hold of that one, all right? The Caiaphas worldview. You see, our worldview is our way. This is what a worldview is. is our way of interpreting the world. It's a way of interpreting God, interpreting the world, in the way that we interact with it. That's what a worldview is. It's an overarching approach to understanding God, the world, and man's relationship to God and the world. It's our understanding of our place in the story. That's what a worldview is. The Caiaphas worldview is exemplified through the voice of the council there in verse 48. The Caiaphas worldview says, If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. All they can see 
in spite of this miracle that's taking place, all they can see is potential loss. It's what they stand to lose if this thing keeps on spreading. For them, it's not about the truth. They're not concerned with the truth here. It's not about what is right and good. All they are really concerned about is protecting their present status. Their primary concern is self. R.C. Sproul describes this as a reservation mentality. That's what he calls it, a reservation mentality. You see, right now they're safe. They're on the reservation. Right now they are protected. They're inside the camp. I mean, they've been conquered, yes, right? Rome is in control. We know that Rome has conquered them, but with inside, inside the empire, inside the reservation, inside the parameters that Rome has told them they can exist, they're actually pretty safe. They're pretty guarded. They're pretty okay. And to those in positions of authority, those who, have, who still enjoy those positions of authority, men like Caiaphas, men like the Pharisees and the rest of the council, those who enjoy that place of privilege within the community, Jesus presents to them as a possible agent of their undoing. It's that this one who walked on water just might end up rocking their boat. And so the Caiaphas worldview seeks only after its own interest. It's its primary aim. As the high priest of that time, Caiaphas had reached the apex of his society. There was no higher position for one to attain within the Jewish system. He's at the pinnacle. And beyond that, he hasn't just climbed to the summit. He's actually stayed there for like 16 years at this point. His family has created this sort of political hierarchy within the Jewish system. And so they've turned it into a political office rather than a priestly office. It's become become their family business. And he's the one who makes the statement there in verse 50. This is his worldview, that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. The Caiaphas worldview is that the ends do, in fact, justify the means. You see, he would fit into our contemporary culture without standing out at all because he's terribly pragmatic. He sees the problem, and in his mind, he knows an expedient solution to that problem. And so he's not just willing It's not that he's just willing. He's actually eager to destroy an innocent man if it will guarantee maintaining the present status quo. The Caiaphas worldview is that the truth is only good if it makes life easier. The truth is only good if it makes life easier. The Caiaphas worldview is that the truth is subjective to our perspective, to our desires and our preferences. The Caiaphas worldview puts us in the position of ultimate authority. The first question that the Caiaphas worldview asks is, what is it going to cost me? It's what do I stand to lose if this is allowed to be true? Never mind what is clear and present, only that which is convenient. And we see it continue in the next session. Look at, look at the start of chapter 12. We're gonna, this is 12, 1 through 11, six days. Six days before the Passover, just stop there. I want to point this out. Within six days, Jesus will be on the cross. That's where we are in the story of John's gospel. Within six days, Jesus will be on the cross. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. 
Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Do you see here what happens when you begin to justify sin? When truth becomes relative to our comfort, when truth becomes relative to our preference, here we see the progression of these folks into the darkness. You see, the moment that we start to justify any sin, we inevitably end up justifying more sin. And so it's that if you are willing to lie in one area, if you're willing to lie in one area of life, what's to prevent you from lying in any other area of life? If you're willing to be unfaithful in private, what's to stop you from being unfaithful in public? If you're willing to demonize one man who doesn't align with your objectives, how long? How long before you're willing to demonize anyone who doesn't align with our objectives? I think we see this in our world today. I think we see the Caiaphas worldview at work all around us. Sometimes if we're not careful, in fact, if we're not real careful, we see it in our own homes. We see it in the car when we're the only one in the car. We see this in our own lives. And we see it here. If they're willing to murder one person, if they're willing to kill Jesus... What would stop them from murdering two people? For them, not only is Jesus a problem, now Lazarus is a problem too. Imagine being Lazarus, by the way. You have died. You have been raised from the dead. And just by virtue of that fact, people now want to kill you. This is his story. This is Lazarus' story. He's, he's the guy who used to be dead, but he isn't dead anymore. And his witness... His witness is a problem. As one commentator said, anytime your star witness is a resurrected corpse, you have a pretty good case. This is what the Caiaphas worldview leads to. It's what it leads to. It puts us in the position of ultimate authority. It puts me in the driver's seat of everything in my life. By the way, that just speaks to our cultural anthem that says, be whatever you want to be. That you can accomplish anything that you are in charge of your life. You control your future. I don't control my future. I don't control what happens to me in the next 10 minutes. As scary as it is, I could trip coming off of this 8-inch step and that could be it. There's a great line, and my wife's going to laugh because I'm about to quote a musical to you guys. But my, my children and I have been listening to the Hamilton musical, and there's a great line in there where he says, you have no control of who lives, who dies, or who tells your story. That's the reality of life in this world. 
I don't control anything. But that's what Judas is trying to do. He's trying to control the narrative here. Look at what he does. He tries to make a little play um, with him. He tries to manipulate the world to orient it in the singular direction of his benefit. All right? That's what we see from him. And he actually tries to manipulate it through a moral argument, which makes it all the worse. Um, He says, wouldn't it be better to sell this in order to give it to the poor? You see what he's doing there? You see, wouldn't it be better for us to sell this and give it to the poor? She's pouring out this expensive ointment. He says, wouldn't it be better for us? Jesus, wouldn't it be better for us to sell this and give it to the poor? He's like that kid in class, right? I mean, everybody knows that kid who's always trying to kiss up to the teacher just a little bit. Yeah, see, he sees an opportunity here. He's like, here's the deal. I'm going to get myself a little grace with Jesus, and I'm going to end up with a little extra money. Wouldn't it be better for us to sell this and give it to the poor? You know, in his mind, he's thinking, surely Jesus is going, yes, Judas, thank you. Mary, you're being so wasteful. But Judas, if you could just tell us more about that. Tell us more about how to be good stewards of the things that God has given to us. Would you, would you enlighten these fools so that they might look more like you? But that's not what happened at all, is it? You see, Jesus knows the heart. He knows the heart, man. And here Judas proves that being around Jesus is not the same as being with Jesus. You see, the Caiaphas worldview only desires for its own good, for its own comfort. It desires for its own privilege in this world. But that's not the Christ worldview. That is not the Christ worldview. In the midst of all this self-serving, here we see an example of self-sacrifice. The Pharisees, the scribes, Caiaphas and Judas, even though they have eyes, they still can't see. They're still blind. This is what... This is what a self-centered Caiaphas worldview, Caiaphas mentality does to us. It blinds us to the world around us. Mark Johnston says this. He says, self-interest is the ultimate obstacle to acknowledging self-evident truth. So when we become our ultimate aim, it doesn't matter what happens around us. All we can see is potential for us. Their ambition has blinded them to the obvious truth that if Jesus is able to raise a man from the dead, then perhaps he really is the Messiah. They cannot bring themselves to let go of their own interest because of what? Because that might mean that they would have to sacrifice something in this world, but not Mary. Not Mary. Look at her. With Mary, what we see is that, is that she has understood She's been given eyes to see the self-evident truth of who Jesus is. She gets it at this point. And now knowing that, there's a response. And her response is that she's coming to him out of a heart, out in a posture of worship. She's coming to him and on her, literally on her knees, pouring out on him what was probably her greatest earthly treasure. This is the Christ worldview. It's seeing God and creation through the lens of Jesus and responding to the world like Jesus responded to the world. And make no mistake, the world thinks Mary's crazy. Judas thinks Mary is crazy. She is wasting her time. She is wasting her money. She is wasting her resources. Listen to me. If you live, I want you to know this, if you live out of a Christ worldview, the world will think that you're crazy too. 
It'll think you're crazy when you prioritize worship over all of your other activities. It will think you are absolutely out of your mind. It'll think you're crazy when, when your first priority in life is the gathering of God's people to worship our Lord and Savior. It'll think it's crazy of you to believe that this is bigger than a football game, that this is bigger than gymnastics, that this is better than soccer practice or cheerleading or art class, that this is bigger than catching up on your sleep. Not looking at anybody in particular on these, by the way. It's always remarkably sad to me that a grown man, I will say this to all of you men, it is sad to me that a grown man can can invest thousands of dollars, can mobilize dozens of volunteers, can spend 10 hours on a Saturday to watch college kids chase each other around and try and knock one another into the ground, but they can't help mama get their kids up and ready for worship on a Sunday morning. You know that every single week, I want you to know this. Every single week, there are people up here on a weeknight. And these are not people who don't have anything to do. These are people with friends. These are people with family. These are people with jobs. They've come here after work, after working a full day in their job. And they come here once a week to practice the music in order to lead us well each week in worship. And I want want to say this. We could, if we really wanted to, go and, and pay professional musicians and hire them out to come here every week. But we believe that as those who've been called into fellowship with Christ, those who've been renewed and restored in Him, that that means that we've also not just been called into a relationship, but we've been called into a mission together. And we've been called to use the gifts and talents that God has given us to serve Him in the advancement of His kingdom here on earth. John Piper says, this is one of my favorite quotes of John Piper, he says, missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. We believe that mission will result from right worship. That's why we call, have you ever wondered why we call this a worship service and not a worship experience? I mean, I'm not knocking any other church for what they name anything. I'm just telling you, when you come here, I'm not asking you to come here and spectate. I'm not asking you to come here and clap and cheer along as, as somebody does something. That's, that's not what we're, I'm asking you to come and in this moment, serve the Lord with gladness as you proclaim his goodness in, in word, prayer, and sacrament. Is that really too much to ask? I'm serious. That when you come here, this is a service of worship. You are gathering with God's people to serve the Lord. That's what worship is. I'm asking you to come with your jar each week and to pour it out at the feet of Jesus. On the feet of the one who calls you into eternal life. Worship is our ultimate goal. And the world, the Caiaphas worldview... It doesn't understand that. It didn't understand Mary. It will not understand you. The world will think you are crazy when they look at your taxes and see what you have given to the advancement of the kingdom. They'll say that you could have had a bigger house. They say you could have had a newer car. They will say that you could have had better clothes. They'll say that. They will. if, If you haven't had that said to you, I hope you will one day. 
they will say, you are absolutely crazy to give toward the work of the church in this community. I need to say something else here that is long overdue. And I want you to hear this from me because it is absolutely true. Um, I know that a lot of you in this room have come from places that are very, very nice. Like, I know that you've come from places with really high ceilings. You've come from places with really shiny organs, maybe. I don't know. You've come from places where there's a real piano and where there are, uh, like, the, all the furniture matches. You've come from places with really cool lights. I mean, some of you are awesome. You came from those kind of the churches where it was loud and there was really great lights and they had a Holy Spirit machine that literally just pumped the Spirit in a falls down, and if you have a 10-year-old with you, they'll go, there he is, right there, coming out, because we went to a buddy's church, and they had one of those, and I was a little jealous, but then my kid reminded me how silly it was, because they filled the room with Holy Spirit fog, and it was amazing. And there was a laser, and I was like, man, where do we get one of those, you know? I know that y'all have come from places with far more, and you come here week after week into, into a former paper well, bookstore. It was almost going to work with the office parallel, but I couldn't quite. <laughs> you come into this place week after week, taking less in the present because of a hope and a promise for the future. I can't begin to tell you how powerful that witness is to the watching world. I hope you know that. Like, I hope you know we feel that. And the people around you feel that too. And your hope for the future is not a better building, by the way, but it's a triumphant kingdom. The world will think you are crazy when you leverage your position, when you leverage your power, when you leverage your gifts and your talents, your resources for the sake of Christ. It will think you are absolutely out of your mind. When you break open your greatest treasure and you pour it out of his feet, the world will call you crazy. They called Mary crazy. Let me ask you this. What are you hanging on to today that Jesus might be calling you to let go of? You see, being in accord with Christ means being out of accord with the world. R.C. Sproul said this. He said, I have no desire. By the way, this is written in your worship guide, and I hope you'll take the opportunity to kind of work through this. And it says, I have no desire to go looking for persecution and conflict. But the fact that I live so free of persecution makes me question my commitment to the things of God. He says, I don't like conflict, but I hate to stand among people like Caiaphas. I would just ask you, how comfortable is your life today? Is persecution an idea or is it a reality? Does the world think you're crazy or does it think you're perfectly normal? Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. If you highlight that verse, you better double highlight falsely, okay? When it, when it utters all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, that doesn't mean that you get to just run around trying to make everybody mad at you. Just because people don't like you does not mean that you are blessed. That is not what that verse means. Kevin DeYoung says there's a fine line between being persecuted and just being a jerk. What Jesus is saying is that the world will despise you not because you're despicable, but because it despised him. You see, as Mary pours out her treasure on Jesus, she's demonstrating what we call a Christ worldview. She's giving you and I, she's giving us an example of one who was willing to look crazy in the eyes of the world if it brought glory to Jesus. What she didn't realize was that within six days of that moment, Jesus was going to give us an even greater gift. 
a gift to his people, as he would pour out not ointment, but he would pour out himself. He would pour out his life for us. Paul describes this in Philippians 2 as saying, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Within six days, Jesus is going to walk up that hill. He is going to be nailed to that cross and he would die. He would pay not just the penalty for our sin, but the penalty for all the sin of the world so that we might live. Caiaphas had no idea how right he was when he said that it would be better for one man to die than that everyone in the nation should perish. He had no idea that what Jesus had planned was not a power play here on earth, but a humble war on death itself. What we're told is that after Mary anointed his feet, it says that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. The idea there is that it overwhelmed the room. Some of you have been around that lady before. I mean, it's, it's okay. It happens, right? Where it, just, it, it overwhelms the room, and it's all you can smell. You know, in a world that's saturated by and filled with stories of pain and suffering and loss, Jesus left you and I. He left us, his people, behind as the fragrance of faith, the fragrance of hope, the fragrance of love, the fragrance of life. Again, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. He says, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us, listen to this, spreads the fragrance, through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. It's that you stink. It's that you smell like Jesus. That's what it's supposed to say. You see, you are the mural that Jesus has left behind. Do you realize that? You are. You are one of the key players in the mural of Jesus' ministry. A living mural. One that it doesn't matter how transient we are because wherever we go, we're still part of that mosaic that he's been painting since the foundation of the earth. You are the legacy. You're the testimony of who he is when you walk in the light of his salvation. You are that. When you walk in, in worship, community, and mission, when you walk in the everyday life of this world. And so what that means for you and I is that today is, is not just another day. Like, it's not just a Sunday. And it means that tomorrow won't just be a Monday or a Tuesday. or I know this Thursday is a unique Thursday, but it won't be an ordinary Thursday. In Christ, there are no ordinary days. There are only opportunities. Opportunities to pour out our lives, for you and I to pour out our lives, to lay our treasure at his feet and bring glory to our God and King. It might sound like a strange prayer, but mine this week is that when people come into this place, when people come into your house, when people come into your, into your office or your cubicle or they sit at the chair that happens to be near you or they're beside you at a football game or a basketball game, that when your family joins together for Thanksgiving, whether that's five people or 50, that what they will smell is the fragrance of Jesus. That when they see us, they will see him in us. And that through your witness, 
the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covered the sea. That's what Habakkuk said was going to happen. I would just challenge you to stop waiting for somebody else to do that. Your face is already in the mural. You've been written into the story. You might as well go ahead and live like it. Because that's what worship looks like. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd forgive my fearfulness, my, my, my doubt and my uncertainty and my, my hopes that are too small. I pray that you'd forgive me for my weak faith. Lord, I pray that you would empower us as your people. Help us to see Help us to see this week, this season, this day, even this moment as an opportunity to bring glory to you. Help us to walk in love and service to the world around us. Help us to pour out our lives. Whatever treasure it is that we're still holding on to, Lord, help us, help us to let go of that. Help us to see you. Help us to see you as the treasure that's worth... <laughs> It's not just worth digging up in the field. It's worth buying the whole field. That you're worth that. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for saving us. Lord, be at work in us now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.